Chapter 11 The Intuition's Initiation A ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not why ships are built. There is one rule before we critique the problems of this world, and so we must first examine our own contribution. The only way we can complain about a problem is if we are willing to propose a new solution. Somewhere along my old day job, I began to see an ongoing cycle of suffering within the human condition. I believed with my whole heart there had to be a solution to this suffering, and so I turned inward to listen to the intuition. Often the intuition is silent, so how could I call it a real whisper? But looking back upon my life, there were so many times she tried to alert me and I almost always missed her. My mind was like a wheel of experience and memories. It's where I stored all my habits, education, and information. And so I could look through the past to see how every future event was based upon a past causation. Now what was the solution to the world's problems? And how could a simple man like me help ease this global tension? If anyone had an answer, it was she. But how could we get the intuition's attention? It was you who caught my eye, she whispered. How? The moment I asked a question, I learned to give space to receive an answer. But even if the solution wasn't always present, I offered up even more space, hoping I'd get a chance to hear her whisper. December 28th, 2012. Do you remember what happened? Think back to where you were, and tell me what it is that you examine," she said. I was living in Detroit, Michigan, and I worked in the automation industry. There I remember December 28, 2012 vividly, because it was upon that day that I thought I touched infinity. And how did you touch it? What brought you to that point? Because it was on that day, December 28th when you answered the intuition's calling and found my voice," she said. I remember feeling lost, or maybe I felt alien in this world, but from the external perspective I had all the things a diligent worker would need. A home, a car, a 401k, a savings, friends, family, and a career. But on the inside I felt panic, anxiety, dread, and horror. These panic attacks grew worse, and I couldn't quite understand the root of this inward suffering and pain. Why on the outside, everyone told me I was doing incredible. But if I was alone, my mind could turn against me and make me wonder if I'd gone insane. The panic attacks turned to a sort of paralysis, to a point I could barely breathe or move. I remember turning white and green like a ghost and that's when I knew that something had to change because this was not normal if something did not improve. A doctor prescribed me some medicine, and as long as I took it, my life and work seemed to be just okay. But truth be told, this medicine covered up all my ambition, and I barely wanted to wake up on any given day. And if I forgot to take the anxiety pill, I knew I had about a day and a half before things would get bad. 
for my mind was always aware as to the feelings before the onset of another panic attack. The panic attacks felt like a cattle prod zapping me, which was like an electric shock, death-defying fear, and a straitjacket all in one. And once the panic attack came, there was nowhere my mind, body, or spirit could run. I simply would have to endure, and I'd curl up by myself, for no one quite knew what I was going through, since no one could understand this dread unless you felt a panic attack for yourself. But this wasn't just once or twice, it had been going on for years, and as it grew in intensity, these panic attacks would grip me so tight I'd imagine I was dying every time when I was overtaken by the fear. I couldn't stand the medicine, for I knew there had to be a root to this cause. Because if a tree branch is looking sick, you have to examine the roots within the soil before you understand why the leaves could be falling off. From here I began to examine my life, and I remember writing and journaling about gratitude and things that made me happy. I tried to find more friends, volunteer, and I even watched plenty of comedies. But nothing quite did it, and the panic seemed to grow worse. Alone and terrified, I began to wonder if I had been cursed. After one panic attack in particular, I remember finding my way to the mirror. Pale as a ghost, I noticed the scars that were etched into my forehead that had always been there. This dread had always existed. For as long as I was a child, I remember panicking as if I'd randomly approached death. Whether I was in church, playing a soccer game, or on an adventure, the mind would twist narratives so tightly that I'd fear how I'd die in this moment where I'd faint in public and run out of breath. This idea was an embarrassment, for I didn't want to alert or alarm others, and so as a child I became quite good at hiding this from my friends, mother, father, and two brothers. It was very confusing, because I remember when the acne and scars started to emerge. Looking back, I now see how I couldn't regulate my thoughts or emotions properly, and so the scars on my forehead became a visual representation of the inner horrors that were being purged. But there was no one I felt I could talk with. I simply continued on. I didn't know why I had such terrible scars upon my face, for I was simply trying to be kind fit in and belong. And as I grew up, there was a realization later in life that maybe the scars upon my head were signals from long ago that something was not quite right. But at the same time I was very fortunate, and I was lucky as a child. Why I'd been given the world compared to those around the earth, and I'd never been beaten or abused, and so any troubles of my upbringing were non-existent and mild. So what was the reason for this panic and dread from a young age? How come I couldn't get past this anxiety? And so I remember when I decided to get to the bottom of it. There I opened up a blank page to write in my diary. In my early 20s I wrote a list of all the obstructions within my life. I didn't know what I was doing or why I was writing this, but I tried to find out why my life didn't feel alright. This list was an honest account of where I was off, and so it became a set of intentions where I could improve. From booze, masturbation, women, cannabis, 
TV, technology, and laziness. I listed off all kinds of things that held me back as excuses I used. I remember I quit my medication cold turkey, knowing that the anxiety would soon be back. But this time something miraculous happened. I decided I was going to confront and face my panic attacks. And the next time the panic came, something inside me did die that day. For I survived even though I was in tears. But that was the first time I felt like I found the intuition's way. There I discovered great strength within me. And from that moment I began to wake up at 5am to hit the gym. Every day I'd print out and post inspirational quotes upon my ceiling as I'd flood my mind with inspirational speeches from famous athletes and great speakers like Robin Williams, Jim Rohn, and Joe Rogan. Every day I was up at 5am and this became a new obsession. I took daily cold plunges outside in the middle of the Michigan winter and in order to wake up early again I'd have to be in bed around 8 or 9 p.m. Day after day, I continued, and I found that early in the morning, my ego was still asleep. I'd focus on that inward growth, and day after day, my routine would repeat. Now who was I? I was a man on a mission. There I chased my biggest dream, and I wasn't asking for anyone's permission. No one told me how to get there. But I was certain this was the way, and I kept going for weeks on end before something clicked on December 28th. My mind stream was clear like a crystal, and I was more motivated than ever before. The panic attacks had not come back for weeks, and the 5am workouts were no longer a chore. Something appeared on that day, but before I felt bliss, I was pissed and annoyed. I was upset at the world for all its misleading bullshit and selfish tactics that the leaders of this world employed. I heard a rap song on the radio, and I couldn't stand the words that came out. Some idiot rapped about champagne, women, cars, and all his clout. It was so selfish and it was making me sick, and I turned off the radio to get rid of the meaningless music. What I found was silence, and I was alone with my own mind. And that's when you found me. At just the perfect time, she said. I remember when that feeling came. I had touched a feeling of bliss I couldn't describe. But you didn't speak with words. But rather, I had a supreme awareness looking out through my very own eyes. I wrote and I wrote. That's the day I began a book titled Open and Read. This was a list of rules to live by so that I could survive any bad day and achieve my wildest dreams. It was that feeling that drove me forward, and I'll always remember what happened on December 28th all my life, for that one single moment created a shift, like a map past any struggle or strife. I couldn't even understand that feeling, because it was the supreme state, and all I remember thinking was about a single number, 28. At the time I must have been around 22, but I became obsessed with what the number 28 could mean, for I'd never felt anything like that in my entire life, and so I was certain that feeling was a secret path towards my deepest dreams. I didn't understand it then, but I began to put everything I had into writing the book titled Open and Read. 
Again, this was a list of rules I compiled from all the great wisdom of this world, and I figured that this could lead me toward my dreams. In a sense, I was like a wisdom thief, and now the walls of my bedroom were covered in motivation and quotes. I was so obsessed to realize my full potential, and that feeling was my intuition. You were my greatest hope. And so the intuition spoke. It is my experience that deep within every man is the blueprint. This is what we call hardwiring, and this blueprint is the map for the calm and mature masculine. Within the collective unconscious are instinctual patterns that are genetically inherited throughout the generations that provide invisible energetic configurations. These archetypes provide the very foundations of our behaviors, our thinking, our feelings, and our characteristics of human reactions. These are the image makers that artists are so close to. These instincts are directly related to other animals' behaviors and actions. Unfortunately, much of the masculine world is trapped in what we call boy psychology. This is the drug dealer, the ducking and diving political leader, the wife beater, the chronically crappy boss, the hotshot junior executive, the unfaithful husband, the company yes man, the indifferent graduate school advisor, the holier-than-thou minister, the gang member, the father who can never find the time to attend his daughter's school programs, the coach who ridicules star athletes, the therapist who unconsciously attacks his clients shining and seeks a kind of normalcy for them, the yuppie. All these men have something in common. They are all boys pretending to be men, she said. And it was your voice that appeared to me on that day. And you didn't say anything other than reveal one number, and that number was 28. But where did your voice come from? For it was not of my making, and that bliss did not belong to me. There was no way I earned this wisdom or achieved it by collecting the proper collegiate degrees. What I had come to was a helping hand through this feeling, something like an inner voice. And this insight was beyond what I could understand. And so who and what was whispering clues without noise? We are continually mistaking man's controlling, threatening, and hostile behaviors for strength. In reality, these men who are boys show underlying extreme vulnerability and weakness the vulnerability of the wounded boy. The devastating fact is that most men are fixated at an immature level of development. No one showed them what a mature man is, and these early developmental years are governed by the inner blueprints appropriate to boyhood. When they grow and are allowed to rule what should be adulthood, when the archetypes of boyhood are not built upon and transcended by the ego's appropriate accessing of the archetypes of mature masculinity, they cause us to act out of our hidden boyishness. We often talk with affection about boyishness in our culture, and the truth is that there's a boy in each of us. When he is in his appropriate place in our lives, he is the source of playfulness, of pleasure, of fun, of energy, of a kind of open-mindedness that is ready for an adventure and for the future. There is also another kind of boyishness that remains infantile in our interactions within ourselves and with others when manhood is required," said the intuition. And who are you? 
Her whisper seemed raw and primal, as if her blueprint was that of an animal. I am patient and I am tender. I am Ananda, the blissful state of supreme splendor. I am the spirit soul, that compassionate examiner. I am nurturing, intuitive, life-giving, loving, and considerate. I am the unconscious feminine in every man known as the anima, she said. The anima? So you're an animal? More like the active imagination. I'm connecting the unconscious content through dreams, fantasy, and the realms of the mind. Your awareness is what makes you conscious, but the unconscious soul is where your physical senses search for the answers to find. The anima and animus are the feminine and masculine blueprints that are within every human by design, she said. I hadn't spoken any of this out loud, but rather all of it was contained by human thought, and somehow the cats were aware of this inner movement and listened in a way that humans were not taught. So you know which way is forward, where we are trying to go. You already know, said the anima. No, I don't. That's why I'm hoping you came along, so that you can show me the best road. Don't give in to fear, and don't look back. The way is forward, and I thought we were following these two black cats, she said. The cats? Why, surely they're on track. But who am I, after all? Am I the voice who is thinking all that? And you, who are you? I am you looking back, said the anima. So I am who you are? But if I make mistakes, then is it I who guide us off track? And then we learn a good lesson, which is perfect and exact, said the anima. Now this big black cat seemed to know something. And what did he know about the way? This one with the broken tooth was like a flame upon a candle, always revealing something unknown, and by my side he always seemed to stay. Then I am on the way. But what are you trying to teach us here? That our inner nature reveals all that is, could ever be known, and this source of wisdom is our spirit, so there is nothing to fear, said the anima. As I followed the cats forward, I spotted a medicine man up ahead. This was the man in the black poncho who wandered, and so I ran to him because there was something that needed to be said. The moment I grabbed hold of him, I realized my fingers clenched around thin air. It was I who wore the black poncho, and this other silhouette of a man was not quite there. Who was that? You mean the magician? He's one of the four primary masculine archetypes. He is the pinnacle along one face of the Great Pyramid, and that means the rest of the lower masculine, or boy psychology, sees this greater masculine vision with contempt and dislike. It can be difficult to achieve, but this is the great height of where the spiritual self aims. Maturity lives within all realms, and this work is much like the kindling of a very sacred flame. And a flame such as this only appears under unique conditions. It's up to our individual choice to accept this expansion and bring it to light through sacred fruition. And so we exist on a spectrum of God made into manifestation. Everything around us is together. Although we appear separate and distant, we are total and whole. What we are on the inside is the same. We are infinite souls. 
between atoms to particles, between a little tail and a broken tooth. The spiritual center in all beings exists as eternal youth. The egoic boy psychology fills the conscious mind with conceptions, but not the confrontation with the shadow and the world of darkness. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but rather by making the darkness conscious, said the anima. But which way? The way, she pointed at the black cat, the one with the broken tooth. You mean wax, she said. Candle wax? That's the name, after all. That's Jane who died to her lower self before her higher spirit came back, she said. Will you look at that? Quite a special cat, said the anima. But about all that, before you mentioned about the black cat, you spoke of a spiritual source and how it's like a flame. Now what are you getting at? Yep, it's all that, she said. All what? You've got that, said the anima. No, I don't. What are you getting at? We're all of that. Together we are it. And sometimes you lose sight of me. Then the lower self takes your ego on a journey ever far. But I'm always whispering, trying to help you get freed. Welcome back, my lover, king, protector, and magician. We're in it together until the very end. Each archetypal energy holds potential and part of the masculine, which means we live on a sort of spectrum. This ranges from immature to mature, and each face of the pyramid has a triune, or three-part structure. At the top of each pinnacle of the pyramid is the archetype in its fullness. At the bottom of each triangle's face is experienced in what we call a bipolar dysfunction, or shadow form, which we all experience. In both our immature and masculine forms, which includes both boy psychology and man psychology, this bipolar dysfunction can be thought of as immature in that it represents a psychological condition that is not integrated or cohesive. Lack of cohesion in the psyche is always a symptom of inadequate development, as the personality of the boy and then the man matures into its appropriate stage of development, the poles of these shadow forms become integrated and unified. Some boys seem more mature than others. They are accessing, no doubt unconsciously, the archetypes of boyhood more fully than their peers. These boys have achieved a level of integration and inner unity that others have not. Other boys may seem more immature, even taking into account the natural immaturity of boyhood. For example, it is right for a boy to feel the heroic nature within himself, to see himself as a hero. But many boys cannot do this and become caught in the bipolar shadow forms of the hero, which appear as the grandstander bully or the coward. Different archetypes come online at different developmental stages. The first archetype of the immature masculine to power up is the divine child. The precocious child and the Oedipal child are next. The last stage of boyhood is governed by the hero. Human development does not always proceed so nearly to this course. There are mixtures of the archetypal influences along the way. Interestingly, each of the archetypes of boy psychology gives rise to a complex way of each of the archetypes of mature masculinity. The boy is father to the man. Thus, the divine child, 
modulated and enriched by life's experiences, becomes the king. The precocious child becomes the magician. The Oedipal child becomes the lover. And the hero becomes the protector. The four archetypes of boyhood, each with a triangular structure, can be put together to form a pyramid that depicts the structure of the boy's emerging identity, his immature masculine self. The same is true of the structure of the mature masculine self. The adult man does not lose his boyishness, and the archetypes that form boyhood's foundation do not go away, since archetypes cannot disappear. The mature man transcends the masculine powers of boyhood, building upon them rather than demolishing them. The resulting structure of the mature masculine self, therefore, is a pyramid over a pyramid, said the animal. What are you getting at? Pyramids are the symbol for the human self. Now follow us, and I'm going to show you the way, she said. Which way? The only way, forward. Let's go abroad and examine who we are at the foundation of the self. Like layers protecting an inner fire, we are discovering the inward-outward connection to manifestation through ourselves. No one else, just life with one eye. And for anyone who wants to become their mature potential, the boy within us has to die. I'm going to show you a path. The cats and I will reveal the way. Starting with the four archetypes of boyhood psychology, I'll take you to the peak of the masculine pyramid as long as you listen to what I've come to say, said the animal. And what have you come to say? Twenty-eight, she said. Now that number planted a seed, and I didn't exactly know what it means, but I took that number as a sign, and there it gave me what I needed to follow my dreams. First I needed a nudge, and so I went backpacking and sailing Croatia and Greece. Now this was much more of a party and a celebration than it was a peaceful retreat. Three great friends convinced me to go, and I don't think we slept the first night, because together we were riding electric energy, and this definitely felt like the way. Everywhere we went, we seemed to be the life of the party. Heading to islands around Greece, we took voyages across the Mediterranean Sea. We started in Mykonos, then Eos, and Santorini. And after about four or five days of non-stop partying, something very strange happened to me. Of course, my body needed rest, but I was running on energy I'd never quite felt before. We became instruments of frenzy, happiness, and wild behavior. There on Santorini, we stayed below the blue domes. This was the inside of an old volcano. And for a few days, this is where we called home. Upon journeying to the bottom of the waters, we took a few edibles. I remember I walked barefoot with my buddies all the way down. Our feet were cut up and raw, but we were so content in Greece that not one of us could frown. Even the worst moments became wild with delight, and so we climbed back up, got ready, and went out to dinner before partying that night. Arriving late to our reservations on a rooftop, there was only one table in the very back. Now the sun was setting, and the streets were packed. Many tourists came for the sunset, but little did we know, our table was closest to the rising full moon. Once it became night, everyone looked our direction, while the silver hue 
flowed over this volcanic lagoon. We laughed so hard, we may have even cried. Happier than I'd ever been, the night was only beginning. That's when we walked to a bar, when all of a sudden, I began to feel something very foreign. I remember after dinner we stopped at the pub, and there we got a beer. But at that moment, I couldn't move my mouth, and somehow I was paralyzed by the onset of a terrible fear. There was no warning, and I was stuck and trapped within my own body. I remember walking out of the pub while my two friends came after me. I don't think I spoke, but rather I felt so far from home, as if someone or something had taken over my body. I was lost in the maze of the Santorini streets, and I felt so terrified and alone. My buddies were right beside me, and they led me back to our room below the blue domes. I remember shaking in my bed when an orange cat came through the door all on its own. My friends were on the balcony, or maybe back at the bar, and now this cat came to sit on me. I was bewildered and confused, as if this cat came to claim me. That full moon was powerful, and that night felt like a Martian takeover. Thank goodness my friends were there, because I'd partied so hard for so long, I'd succumb to overexposure. That was the first few days, and we were there for at least another week. Then we set sail from Split to Havar in Croatia, where we took part in a festival called Yacht Week. This included more partying, and we teamed up with another friend, along with four girls we just met from Australia. There we started along the next leg of our trip, with so much drinking, we're quite lucky it didn't kill us. That happened before I turned 28, right around the time I published that book of rules to live by titled Open and Read. Now I set out to live the moral of that book and chase my most wild dream. There I sold all my things, cashed in all my money. Next I followed my intuition and started on a trip across the world. No one else would understand it, but I had to follow the intuition I once had heard. With nothing more than two bags I carried, I let go of everything else I had, and so I went forward without any other direction and I followed the feeling I had found on December 28th to find the way in which there was no path. The dream I followed was vivid, and it was all because of that moment on December 28th, and so I began to organize a plan where I'd travel around the entire earth serving and volunteering for a work exchange. I found a website that offered exchanges, and so I'd work four to six hours in exchange for a bed to sleep in and food to eat. And so I set up stops all over the earth to meet people from all cultures and backgrounds. My goal was to write a story, but I didn't know exactly where it would go. And so the first title of the book was called, Where the Mysterious Creatures Roam. On top of this story, I created 30 questions that I wanted to interview whomever I met. These questions ranged from, what do you love? What do you dream of? What do you fear? and do you have any regrets? The plan was to create an online audience for my upcoming book. And so on YouTube, I created a series called Who We Are. I planned to interview, record, and edit short videos on my travels abroad, near, and far. To start the interview, I'd ask the person, who are you? Then upon closing the interview, I'd ask the same question, now who really are you? It was so strange to observe. 
because after the first question, they always told me their name. Then by the end of the interview, their answer was always rearranged. They'd finish with a purpose, and they'd say, I'm a mother, or I'm a brother, or I'm a lover. And so this interview took us deep, where all kinds of beautiful things were discovered. I wanted to understand why people did what they do, and I think it was because I was looking for my solution. And so I wanted to remind people that in a world of differences, we have one huge similarity. We are human. Now just before I left for good, I had to get all kinds of shots and vaccinations. It was then I told the doctor about my history with panic attacks, and so he prescribed me a bottle of benzos in case of emergency that I could pack as medication. First I went to Brussels, Belgium, but just before I arrived there was a series of train station bombings. I met a few new friends, but the results of this terror attack was beyond alarming. This was the first city I stopped in after my departure, and I went to the memorial where people from all backgrounds were distraught and brokenhearted. After Brussels, I went to Virton, where I met a connection to my ancestors. This man I lived with was a friend of my grandma's, and so for a week or so, I helped him with all sorts of small tasks while I lived there. After Virton, I went into Luxembourg and there I saw where my ancestors once lived. On the border of France, Germany, and Luxembourg, I looked out upon the vineyards, stepped my feet into Germany, and imagined what it would have been like when my ancestors were kids. From there I went to Milan, and I stayed with a couple from Iran who let me sleep in their spare room. Little did I know, this was the beginning of a great adventure where a mature man would bloom. They took me in his family, and they threw a great party for me. Then I ventured to the Duomo, that great cathedral, and after that I explored through the monumental cemetery. Next I hitched a ride to Turin, and there I interviewed the driver along the way. He told me to live our lives following the dreams we had as a child, and so I departed and thanked him for being so gracious upon that day. From there I went north to Ivrea where I lived with a young permaculture farmer named Simone on the foothills of the Italian Alps. He was once a fashion photographer who had given up his things and purchased three walls of an old house that had made up his camp. He had no working bathroom, and so we dug holes and went in the woods. There I worked for him in exchange for a tent to sleep in along with vegan food. I remember those days were so pure, and I felt like I was coming to my senses. I remember when he put cannabis in our couscous, and I remember when I fell in spiritual love with an older widow named Clarissa. After my time in Italy, I got on a train and went to France. I stopped in Paris for about an hour, then I hitched a ride with someone else. This gentleman was from the Congo, and his name was Lionel, and he used to play professional soccer, and his graciousness and love were undeniable. He told me to call him if I ever make it to the city of Rennes, and so I told him I hoped I'd see him again. He dropped me off in Le Mans when I met a new friend named Benjamin. I told Ben about my journey, and there I crashed on his couch. That night he threw me a party with his friends, because he said it was rare that an American makes it out. It turns out that not many Americans travel, 
and even fewer have a passport to see the world. But how could I explain to these people that I was following a voice that had risen up from my inner world? After that, I got on a train and went to St. Suzanne, France, which was an old castle of sorts. There I lived with two artists named Anne and Gavin from the UK, and I stayed in the attic of an old gun room on this historic fortress. Again this was a work exchange, and so I chopped wood for four hours a day for a couple weeks. These artists made me great food and we got plenty of drinks. So drunk that I took a flaming shot and later that night I could barely speak. We danced and we sang and I adopted their ways. Someday I wish I could go back to that attic where I dream I could forever remain. It was in that old gun room where a new title of my book shot into my mind. I heard the intuition speak and there it said a new adventure was called Life with One Eye. While living in the gun room, I began to write this new book. I had no clue where it was leading me, and so I began looking for inspiration in that chateau where I was led across a gentle brook. When I got across that stream, I found an old abandoned mansion. The number 666 was written on some of the walls, and I explored it as it was quite expansive. Now no one would believe me, but I'm going to tell you what I felt and saw. An orange ghost crossed my path there, and it scared the shit out of me, and so my entire jaw dropped. In the room where I saw the ghost, there was a name spray-painted along the wall. It was the name of a man, and O.J. Jack is what he was called. Ever since that day, I began to feel like Jack was along for the ride with me. Maybe this Jack needed a home, and I began including this Jack as if he was with the intuition and me. I didn't know what his goals were, but maybe he just needed my eyes to see. Well, I started to flow with the wind, and maybe the Jack, my intuition, and myself were all just trying to get free. Upon my last days in France, I remember feeling quite sad. I didn't want to leave, but again, maybe it was because I felt pulled to that attic in the gun room and the abandoned mansion where I found OJ Jack. My foster parents woke me up on the last day, and they told me they had an adventure planned. No more cutting wood, and so we took off in their car where a historic day began. We drove to the coastline, and I wondered if we were going to enjoy a day on the beach with sand and shells. But then we arrived at a great castle, and this stronghold was named Mont Saint Michel. According to legend, the Archangel Michael appeared in 1708 to the bishop at the time. Between sieges, wars, and battles, this castle inspired Joan of the Ark, and so I entered within and journeyed upward towards the highest point I could climb. I wanted to stay forever, and I even trekked around the outer walls. Then the ocean's tide began to come in, and so the guards yelled out in an alarming call. There they came to rescue Gavin and I, for they said we were about to drown. The tide was a mysterious force, and it came quickly upon us without a warning sound. From there I stopped in Rennes, and I met up with Lionel from the Congo who gave me a lift. Even after he'd just worked all day at the post office, he came out to give me a tour of the city as a free gift. This man is incredible, and he brought me to dinner with his wife and family. I don't know if he had much at the time, but he was the mature masculine who embodied humility. 
From there I went to Denard. I stayed with some locals while they took me in before I boarded a boat. After that I was off to the island of Guernsey, UK and the English Channel while I looked for more inspiration as I wrote. In Guernsey I lived with a widow named Julie and her family took me in. I lived where her son was raised, in a secret room above the kitchen. There I worked odd jobs and chores, and I even read a book for young kids in school. Of course they thought I was a silly American, and I smiled because I was that fool. Then I was so moved by the kind people, I wanted to do even more for the community, and so Julie had an idea that I could walk around the entire island and offer it up for charity. There I raised money for MUG, which stands for Male Uprising Guernsey. Then I began training for this long walk, and they even took me to the neighboring island named Jersey. Now this walk was not a simple stroll. It was nearly 40 miles around in total. Add in all kinds of cliffs, this scenery was surreal, divine, and coastal. As the day for the walk came, I was quite afraid I must admit. I'd never walked 40 miles in a day. But I was determined that I could not quit. For I remember thinking that this walk is going to teach me something for later on. Sure enough, I began that walk, and I didn't know how long I'd be gone. Alone and on my own, Julie, my foster mom, dropped me off before the sunrise at the Imperial Hotel, and the first major stop I had was about a mile in when I came across a fairy ring of stones which was similar to a wishing well. Julie had told me about this, and it was many stones set in a circle. Well, me, OJ Jack, and my intuition made our wish, then we walked around it three times in a circle. From there the trek began, and first off were the cliffs along the coast, and there I walked up and down the beautiful yet steep terrain, and after about 12 miles my legs were toast. I remember when I got to Jerberg, which was along the southern end. I questioned why I even started. Oh goodness, why would I even set out to begin? But this simple walk was a lot like my journey, and so I took it one step at a time. Why I was a poet inside, so the more exhausted and tired I became, the more a sense of loony madness began to rhyme. The more tired I got, the more silly I became, and so I walked on and on with a single aim. It didn't matter what it took, but I was going to walk around the entire island in a day. Maybe I wouldn't make it, but there I heard my intuition whisper, This is the way. Now upon that day, I could have stopped and rested in a nice bed. I'm sure I could have found a few beers and a nice meal instead, but I knew I was powerful, and I believed that with all my heart. There was a reason I set out upon this mysterious path and it was the same reason I set out to depart. I was curious about my potential, and I wanted to know how far one man could go. And even if no one else was watching, I went deep into my intuition because I knew I had to grow. For who was I? I was a man on a mission, chasing a dream for goodness sakes, and I wasn't looking for anyone's permission. Truth be told, my legs almost gave out, but Julie's daughter Holly came to walk the last eight or so miles with me, and so I discovered that sometimes we need friends to walk with us so we don't get lost on our route. By the time I finished, I was back at the Imperial Hotel, 
I drank one beer and I was drunk. Then I went home and slept extremely well. Now I could barely walk the next day, but there was one more stop I wanted to make. I went down to see Victor Hugo's house, but it was just my luck that it was closed that day. Guernsey is my favorite place in the world, and someday I hope to live and retire there. Oh, I wish I could keep that a secret so no one else found out, but there isn't another place on the planet that compares. After Guernsey, I boarded a plane and went to Ireland. There I landed in Dublin at last. I quickly made my way to Ennis, and I went a bit north to live on a farm with horses, cows, dogs, and all kinds of animals. Then right away, my host took me to get a few pints on draft. Again, this was a work exchange, and so I lived with a farmer named Aidan. For a few weeks, I was always on that farm, and it was nice to live by the horses who I liked to relate with. It was the first time I lived near such a big animal, and I was quite cautious when they approached from afar. These were powerful horses with gracious strides, and I was always willing to feed them and bring them water. I'd scoop their poop, and I did anything the animals needed. I saw a cow give birth, and I remember having to direct the cows into a new pen when I thought I'd get stampeded. Aiden's farm was a wonderland, better than anything I could have imagined. A safe haven of how pure and simple life could be. And I wanted all of us to go backwards in time, to live this way, even if many thought of this lifestyle as old-fashioned. It was so pure and fulfilling, and yet it required many hard days. There he introduced me to all sorts of good people and friends, who were all kind-hearted in their ways. I remember I talked with one farmer, who said he spent his savings to buy a plot of land. His goal was to replant the native trees that had once been cut down. Oh, he was the perfect mature man. I asked him why he wanted to do this, as if he had some sort of grand plan. I'll never forget what he told me. He said, I may have bought this property, but it's not mine. I'm just looking after this land. Aiden took me to many Irish pubs, and that's when I learned that alcohol is not just poison. Why, I've never been more happy, heard more stories, and bonded any better. That's when I learned how alcohol can also be medicine. I learned to be gentle and listen, since I wasn't from around there. The bartenders and locals would always ask me questions to make sure I wasn't someone they needed to fear. After they found a way to trust me, we'd sing songs, tell stories, or sometimes dance with a little jig. And then I knew they were having fun with me when they tricked me into kissing a dead pig. From cats and flower pots to happy pigs who someday would become food, these people lived in union with the land, and that's when I decided to get a tattoo. After weeks on the farm, I went back to the Cliffs of Moor before I journeyed to Ennis. I remember right after I got my tattoo, I had a strange intuitive thought that I should call my grandpa. Well, I gave him a ring, and he asked where I was. I told him, Grandpa, I'm in Ennis, and he replied, Well, that's quite strange. That's where our family once came from. Now what are the chances that this is where I got the tattoo of the world upon my arm? and this happened to be the same place my grandpa's family was from? It was the same area where I lived on the farm. I wandered to a town called Paradise, and there I found an abandoned building overtaken by nature. There I learned that no matter what people try to do or how strong we think we are, 
The power of earth is always greater. This old mansion was left behind, and the roof was long gone, but the stone on the outside was still there, and more and more trees had come along. After I left, I headed back to Dublin, but not before I stopped in a town called Nina to get my fill. Looking for a few pints, I met a girl there. Oh, wherever I wander with fondness, I'll think of you still. I won't tell you her name, but flowers were her game, and so I begged her to take me in under her wing in Dublin, where I did another work exchange. I was her transportation manager, and so I watched her flower shops thrive and bloom. I guess I learned that love finds you when you least expect it, and before I knew it, the trip around the world resumed. After Ireland, I went to Morocco. There I stayed in a Riyadh in the old Medina of Marrakesh. Surreal and far from the westward world, I learned how snake charmers barter with cash. Then I boarded a bus and went through the gateway of the Sahara. This is when I stopped in Warwazeti before I went deep into the heart of the desert to a place I wasn't prepared for. They called this city Taganite, and it was late in the night when I met a new friend named Abdu. He told me to hop on his motorcycle, and so I carried the two bags and whatever I had found for food. It was pitch black, and I remember thinking, please God, don't let me die. I was beyond far gone. And even at night, the heat of the desert could make a grown man cry. I gave Abdu a bottle of wine, which I'd taken all the way across Morocco. There I discovered it was highly illegal to transport booze, since the Islamic faith is what most people followed. Abdu was overjoyed. It had been a while since he'd seen a bottle like this, and so he poured a tiny glass for every person at his camp, and each of us got about two ounces of wine because he chose to share it. Abdu and his brothers took me in his family, and there were only curtains where the dirt had been crafted into doors. There was no working refrigeration, and every meal we ate with our hands while we sat upon pillows laid out over the floor. They didn't have many possessions, but they were rich in kindness and compassion. For this man seemed more and more like a long-lost brother. He was another definition of the mature masculine. So selfless and gentle, he took me upon a camel and brought me deep into the desert. So deep that we went past the last Moroccan military post when I wasn't sure if I could bear it. It may have been Algeria, and everywhere I looked I could only see sand. That's when we dropped off the camels and hitched a ride in a jeep and went even deeper in the Saharan desert land. He would teach me things that no western person would know. We'd be moving along the sand, and then he held a twig in his hand. And as soon as the twig would turn, he'd speak up and say that this twig had something to show. For beneath our feet, if we dug deep enough, we'd find water. He listened to the land, and he too lived in union with nature. Drinking water from strange wells, this is something my system had to get accustomed to. After we ran out of bottled water, I was desperate for any hydration to make sure my body could make it through. On the verge of panicking, I felt more terrified and anxious than ever before, and even though my body, mind, and spirit were sending me messages, upon the deepest night in the desert, he called me to the highest dune and said, This is something you must see, for this is why we explore.
I climbed to the top of the dune at sunset, and there for as far as the eye could see I saw sand, such a mysterious place to touch, and yet this was nothing I could understand. I learned about the spirits who watch over the desert, and they are something like great giants who would protect us, as long as we respected the land and didn't live in defiance. That night under the stars, I was so tired but I couldn't close my eyes, for it was so dark and the stars so bright, I wondered if this was heaven in disguise. I don't know how to explain it, but there was no light for hundreds of miles in any direction, not a cloud in the sky. I looked up and saw the infinite heaven, stars so beautiful. I remember I even feared a snake might bite me as I slept under those stars. I tried to stay awake all night, but the next time I opened my eyes, all I saw was the orange sand forever far. I worked for Abdu in Morocco, and there I helped him and his brothers build the space that could welcome more foreign visitors in. And by the time I left, I felt like we were family, and to this day, I still think of them as long-lost kin. Then something strange happened, as some visitors came to stay with him from Portugal and Spain. They brought a book called The Alchemist, and this was one of my favorites, and so I read it again. It was so surreal, because in that story, the main character sets out to find a treasure. There he goes through Morocco and loses everything while he's tested upon his endeavor. I remember reading the story and thinking, why this is odd because I'm in Morocco right now, for I too have set out upon a journey to find treasure, but I don't know where to look or how. Then one of the last days I was there, it was so hot that I felt like I was trapped in a pressure cooker. My brain began to malfunction, and the only thing my intuition or mind could think of was one word. Sugar. The word went on repeat for hours, and all it kept telling me was sugar. Abdu was concerned and brought me into town, and as soon as I tasted juice, I realized my intuition was warning my body that I was not well, and now I understood how I was connected to her. Journeying back across Morocco, I took a bus over the Atlas Mountains back into Marrakesh. By the time I looked into the mirror again, my body had transformed and I was so thin by all the weight I had lost. Every night I slept in the desert heat, and my body had no choice but to adapt to the hot temperature and vegetarian ways, for I found that I loved tangine, and I still crave it to this day. Next I went to Uganda, and there I served at an orphanage. By now the travels began to take a toll on me, because once I saw how poor a country could be, my mind and spirit began breaking. I'd been moving so fast, and my body and mind were just trying to adapt. But this orphanage was so far from what I knew. There was no quick way to pack up and head back. Upon the first few days in Uganda, I got diarrhea so bad I began to wish I was home. I'd run to the bathroom, which was a simple hole in the ground. If only I was back at work in the air conditioning, and as I looked down at the hole, two lizards came out. There were so many children with nothing, not even shirts or shoes, not to mention there were health concerns. Some days people were lucky if they could get a single plate of food. We worked to build a new school, 
for the old school was made of wood that continually fell apart. The more I tried to do anything to help, the more broken I felt deep within my heart. How could life be like this? And why wasn't anyone around the world doing anything? That's when I learned that their government is so corrupt that they take a cut of any incoming donations. I gave more than I was ready to give, but there was no way it was enough to help all these kids that were just trying to live. As I tried to understand the situation, my guide named Henry, who looked over the orphanage, tried to explain. He said that even though the school was falling apart, it was so much better than nothing, and so no one ever complained. Everyone was grateful with so little, but I must admit I found it very hard to be there, because the longer I stayed, the more I became aware. This was a real struggle, and I discovered how some men would kidnap the orphans and use them as fish bait. I think it was the first time my mind truly broke when I couldn't recover, because now I could not fathom the depths of such horror and hate. Now it wasn't all bad, for there was plenty of joy. Every day I saw the kids smile, for I think I became their favorite white boy. Why everyone noticed me, and then I got invited to an African wedding. I saw how different the married ways in Africa were, and so the groom's parents came with all kinds of offerings. They fed everyone there, and Henry made sure I was properly introduced. Then I remember that night, the parents of the groom gave a cow to the bride's family. They tied it to a tree, but then it got loose. I remember it destroyed many chairs. It even flung a few people over their heads. I myself was absolutely terrified, for it was pitch black, and I stuck out like a sheep on a soccer field, so I thought for sure I was dead. After I left Uganda, something within me had been rearranged. To this day, I cannot quite explain, but something was broken and it could not be fixed, repaired, or changed. For I got a deep look into how the world really was, and it was beyond what my mind could fathom. I was so tired and exhausted from the travels, but I was only halfway done with the worldwide mission. From there, I went through Ethiopia before I stopped in Dubai. My body made everyone aware that I appeared to be a strong American, but I was shaking and broken on the inside. The worst part is that nothing had happened to me. There was nothing that went wrong, for I was not beaten, starved, abused, or held captive, but still my spirit felt dejected and withdrawn. I didn't understand why I left America, and I even thought about how lucky I was to work for the Order, for I'd give anything to go back, but the only way was forward. On my way to Dubai, I met an Arab man on the plane, and I remember his wife wore a black gown that covered everything but her eyes. I looked at her for a moment, but I didn't know if that was wrong, and so I crept back within myself to hide. Maybe her and I weren't so different, but we were covered from different things. I wish I could have spoken to her, because we were both spiritual beings underneath our human skins. Then on the airplane, I remember I saw the woman's husband prostrate his body in the aisle to pray. He was calling out to Allah, and he did this based on a very specific direction and time of day. It was devotion like I'd never seen, and this was something I didn't understand. 
but through observation I learned so much about my fellow man. From here I began to speak less and listen more, for there was little I wanted to say. Meanwhile whatever money I had began to slip away. I tried to give to those who needed it, but I also had a long ways to go. From here the trip started to become more like a blur and I wished I was back living in the gunroom of that beautiful French chateau. In Dubai I got lucky to meet up with old friends, some of the people I met from Yacht Week, and I was in desperate need of some familiar faces, and their kindness is a memory I'll forever keep. These three girls were working as expats from the UK, and they led me into their apartment so I could do laundry. This was another example of selfless service that these girls had taught me. Once I left Dubai, I planned to go into Jordan and the desert of Wadi Rum, but I was aching inside and the plans to meet a random stranger in the desert was something I lost belief in. I changed my plans at the last minute, and there I went to Sri Lanka. I took a train to the southernmost point of Mantra, Marissa, and Waligama, where I lived in a spare bedroom of a family where I bonded with a father named Chamika. He brought me to the local stores, and he helped me get a moped. I was terrified of the triple passing on the roads, but I overcame that fear and dread. He taught me how to cook, and he showed me where to get fish. I didn't even like seafood, but this was a lesson I could not afford to miss. The best thing I ever did was ask him about his faith. He didn't distinguish if he was a Hindu or a Buddhist, but he said that the next morning he'd take me to his temple and teach me how to meditate. His modest home was a few blocks from the beach, and so we walked through the jungle to his temple. There I met a monk named Vinitha who wore orange robes, and he barely spoke, but he had the biggest smile. I was used to asking questions, and I realized I had a way of trying to get people to open up and talk, but this man said next to nothing, and so I followed him while he took a mindful walk. The ocean was breathing, and the temple overlooked the sea. This land was so simple, and now looking back, I realized that was heaven right in front of me. He brought me into the shrine room, and there I saw a very large statue of a golden man laying upon his side. He told me to observe my breath, not to think, and just feel, and that's all I remember healing from Vinitha my guide. We sat in stillness for minutes. And after I left, I walked home through the jungle, but came back to the temple a few more times after that. It was so auspicious to walk there, and so I'd go inside and sit by this Buddha on his side where I too sat. I didn't know what I was doing, but I felt at peace there. I began to get a little depressed when I was back alone in my room, because I felt such unique energy there. As I lived near the temple, the jungle and the ocean, I was almost always on my own. I'd sit with the ocean and the crabs on the rocks, and there I'd reflect on just why I left home. For so long I was thinking about the book I was writing, and this was about my dream. But I began to feel quite sad, because the whole thing was always about me. There I'd stare at the ocean, and I'd look out across the sea. I discovered that the most beautiful places in the whole world is where there are no people, and that's where I felt most free. After Sri Lanka, I went towards Nepal, 
but ended up in Malaysia. I remember meeting a European my age on the plane, and so he took me out for a drink, but I could not remember where I was or even remember that this was a continent in Asia. My mind was malfunctioning, and again it felt like something I couldn't quite fix. I'm sure I could ask someone what country I was in, but for some reason I couldn't remember it. Then in Malaysia I was tired for days. I could barely get out of bed to find food. I remember I found rice in the cabinet, and so I heated it with oil I found under the sink and began to cook it through. But that oil must have gone bad, because I was so sick I thought I might die. Lost in Malaysia, all I could do was curl up and cry. I missed the flight to Nepal, and that was the place I believed I could find the answer. I don't even know why I wanted to go to Nepal so bad, but it was my intuition telling me I was meant to go there, and so I listened to her. Because I got sick and missed my flight, it meant I had to stay in Malaysia a few extra days. The moment I got better, I met a woman named Olivia from Bolivia, and she saved me in a way no words could quite explain. She brought joy back into my heart, for she was the first person to explain the meaning behind the word called Namaste. Olivia was a yoga teacher, and I'd never heard Namaste before. A light in me sees and honors the light in you, and so Olivia became a woman that I adored. She showed me around the city, and took me to art galleries. Even though I felt so uplifted with her, the journey had broken me. I didn't know how to explain what I'd felt, and so all I continued to do was write. Somehow by putting words on pages, I was able to unravel my mind, and even if only for the moments I was writing, I became obsessed with a story called Life with One Eye. When I did depart for Nepal, I arrived in Kathmandu. I learned they operate on Nepalese time there, and this slow pace was welcomed as something new for I did have a place to go, but I was in no hurry since I was doing another work exchange, and so I journeyed toward Bhaktapar and Changunarayan, where the oldest Hindu temple had been built and still remains. I lived with a man named Druba and his wife named Manuka, and so I would clean their dishes or do whatever they needed help with. I think I paid two dollars a day to stay, and they gave me my own room with a net for bugs. The only regret I have is the giant spider I tried to kill. It was the size of my hand and I didn't know how to get rid of it. I tried to smack it with a sandal and it was behind the curtains. It ran out the window and disappeared into the gardens. There across the hall was a German and Polish girl named Aga. We would put hashish in the end of cigarettes. We'd talk for hours under the stars and smoke it. We talked about World War II and I remember the remorse she felt, for she and her family hadn't participated in the Second World War directly, but it was still a connection to Germany that her family was dealt. Another deep soul, and how lucky was I to find people that lifted me higher. I left her with that book of poems I'd written called Open and Read, then I went in my bedroom for the night to retire. The next day she came to apologize, for she left that blue book I'd written out and it got drenched in the rain. For some reason, I thought it was the most beautiful thing that could have happened, and I began to dream that maybe the rain read and felt what my heart was trying to explain. 
Why, up till now, I thought of myself as a poet, but I'd only sold a handful of copies of Open and Read, so no one in the world had any reason to know it. I spent my days in Nepal hanging around tea shops and markets. There I met a man named Joy who sold me a few posters, a mask, and a mala necklace. One of the paintings was a wheel of existence, and the other was a wheel separated and split into six ways. I did not know it then, but this was the six states of existence I did not understand on that day. The painting with the wheel had a giant beast chewing and eating the universe. It reminded me of what I felt like on the inside when I was overcome with nervousness. The second small painting was a similar wheel, again with various aspects. But this one was pure and beautiful. This one was opposite of the first and reminded me of life, while the other reminded me of death. The third painting was a black wheel that said, Omane Pedme Home. On top of that, I bought three large posters on a paper canvas. The first had a pointy temple called the stupa, the second the wheel of existence, and it was surrounded by enlightened beings I assumed to be Buddhas. The third poster was a half-naked woman I'd never seen, and I'd come to find out many years later that this woman's name was Tara. The last night, Joy gave me a mask, and this was the face of a man with three eyes. This mask wore a crown of skulls on his head, and screaming in a manner that appeared to be a death-defying cry. After Nepal, I went to Thailand, and for some reason, there was a feeling within me that I really wanted to party. And so I did this, even when I was electrocuted, for reasons I cannot expand upon. I remember my intuition sent me a sign with a physical shock, like a cat hissing. I was electrocuted, and this was a sign to stop. In Thailand, I climbed a great staircase, and this was the path up to the Tiger's Temple. There on top was a giant golden Buddha, and it was the same figure of an enlightened being that the posters resembled. After Thailand, I was off to Hong Kong to meet my older brother, and it had been a long time since I saw him, and so we caught up with one another. A lot had changed, but a lot had stayed the same. He was my original motivation to begin writing, and so I told him about the book I was working on, but looking back. I had come off harsh and in my ego with the way I had explained. There was a falling out. After all, he was our family's great writer. Meanwhile, my life had become quite a mess, and of course I was the middle brother. I'd barely written anything, and now I told him I had a tale of a great set of stories on my mind. I appeared as a naive dreamer, but how could I explain the moment I'd met my intuition and what I'd come to find? Upon leaving Hong Kong, I remembered the flight was very late at night. As I packed my bags onto the security checkpoint, I remembered the bin had a number, 28. Now I know it was just a chance, but by now a lot of strange things had come to pass. Why would that number be reaching for my attention, and what was my intuition getting at? From there I went to Perth, Australia, since I think it was the cheapest ticket into that country. All I cared to do was keep writing, and somehow this story titled Life with One Eye began to feel like it was oppressing me. I was so obsessed, and I believed this story was going to be so good. Turns out it was shit at the time, 
and I'm glad this was something I misunderstood. I kept writing and I wouldn't stop. That led me to Melbourne, where I met up with another friend named Olivia. I lived on a sailboat in the Docklands, right next to the library, and rather than explore, I wrote non-stop, because I was desperate to finish this story and I was running out of money. After Australia, I got a flight to New Zealand, and there I stayed with a few random people and a rugby player. Again, I had no money to explore, and so I'd bounce around coffee shops, writing more and more pages, listening to my intuitive nature. By now, I could barely hear my intuition. Instead, I was running on overdrive, fueling this trip with anything that was left. I didn't realize my ego had taken hold of me so tight, because for so long, I'd been burnt out and needed more and more rest. But I couldn't stop, and so I tried my best. The last stop before I'd go home was Honolulu, Hawaii, and this is when I discovered that I was truly blessed. Of course, I went to the beach, but again my obsession kept me pinned in coffee shops. I neared the end of the first draft of life with one eye, and my obsession wouldn't stop. I'd spent all my money after I'd cashed in my 401k, my savings, my checking, and everything to my name. Something about this story had to be told, and long ago, my intuition reminded me that this was a message that must be proclaimed. In Hawaii, I found the cheapest place to stay, which was a crash pad piled high with bunk beds. This is where flight attendants stayed in between layovers, and so this also happened to be a packed place where I would rest my head. It turns out the man who rented it to me was having a get-together with friends. He invited me out, and it was from that dinner where I'd soon meet one of my upcoming best friends. I'll spare you his name, but in the Islamic faith, his name means something like guardian angel. I discovered he studied in the Muslim seminary in Saudi before moving to Portland, and for that I am forever grateful. At dinner we became instant friends with another girl named Maria, for we were all a little lost in this big world. And this guardian angel was very kind and outgoing, and he was far smarter than me from what I observed. He was not your typical Muslim, for he was open to life just like I. Be it a beverage or a meal, there wasn't much he wouldn't try. I felt very pulled to him, for he was an extreme optimist. And then I discovered something very interesting. He had studied topics ranging from alchemy to exorcists. Now this was intriguing, because I'd never met a man like him, and the more I talked, the more he knew of certain secrets that existed deep within. By the time I left Hawaii, I had completed a full circle around the entire globe. Then I stopped by Wisconsin to say hello to my grandparents, and then a week or so later, my grandpa died when only him and my grandma were home. I'll never forget the day he died. The date was 1028. I'll never forget that number because once it was charming and suddenly it began to haunt my fate. I looked at what I had left, which was two bags, footage from my trip, a first draft of a book, and about $200. Then I created a video from my travels and used that $200 to create an ad to show the world. I told my friend from Hawaii about the feeling on December 28th, because I knew that this feeling wasn't a lie. I told him it didn't matter if I had to give everything to the journey. 
I'd even go totally broke with zeros in my bank account to prove how bad I had to try. He was the only one who supported me fully, and there he gifted me $200 to keep me going, where I created the inspirational video and published an ad for $400. The video exploded, something like 300,000 views, but after the next few days, the video lost traction and got overlooked by other viral videos and recent news. Was it all for nothing? Because all I had left was a book called Life with One Eye, along with the voices in my head that would whisper and taunt me, and there they began to speak in rhymes about suicide. After that, things took a turn for the worst, because I was completely broke, and whatever my intuition had told me, now hid, and I couldn't hear when it spoke. My mind was in disarray, and I had no time to recover. I made a promise that if I couldn't publish Life with One Eye after my travels, then I promised I'd go back to work because this is what I told my father. Looking back, I needed more time to rest, but I also had just used all the money I'd ever made. And what did I have to show for it? A mala, a few paintings, a mask, and a shitty first draft of a story that made me wonder if this illusion of a number called 28 had left me betrayed. From there, I went to Austin, Texas, and I worked for the family business selling engineering parts and systems. When I wasn't working, I wrote nonstop, and the more I searched for my intuition, the more I discovered that inner voice was missing. When I couldn't write anymore, I'd drink and write until my eyes would twitch. Then just when I thought I had nothing left, I'd spark a joint and keep writing until my body, mind, and spirit had to quit. Something was wrong with me, but I didn't have a clue what it was. I began drinking very heavily by myself because of all the mental pain I'd been caused. Now I'd done this to myself, but it was a hard pill to swallow. That blissful feeling I'd described on December 28th in Detroit, Michigan felt like a past life and now my life felt hollow. What had I done? And who was I? I failed at writing the story I set out to discover, and I began hearing more voices whispering about suicide. Now this wasn't my intuition, but rather it felt like a demonic force within. I'd get nervous every time I had to eat, because I knew there was a large sharp knife in the kitchen. I didn't want to do it, but I also didn't want to live. Why had I cashed out my 401k, spent all my savings? And why did this story called Life with One Eye turn out to be such a pile of shit? But I? Who was I? I was a man who wouldn't quit. I have hundreds of revisions of that story from different days where I released those suicidal thoughts that I couldn't quite commit. I began to funnel that energy into a story, and there I found myself pinned upon the fourth floor. My mind had turned against me. And there I realized I was being abused and tortured. Now to the average person I looked just fine, for I looked like a scruffy drunk who was the same old me. But on the inside I was locked behind a brass door from the end of 2016 to 2020. And I was praying for someone to come and unlock me with a secret key. But who could help me? My father, my younger brother, and my best friends were the only ones who came near. They knew something was wrong with me, and without them, I might not have made it. 
but they alone did not have the key or my cure, and so I looked to a character I created, and his name was Amokli. There this character reminded me about the guardian angel I met in Hawaii, and so I reached out to this man and explained how bad I was struggling, and that's when this angel came to save me. I was possessed by rage, anger, and suicidal thoughts, but I didn't imagine this angel had a secret key. He came to visit upon a new trip, and that's when he offered me LSD. I took that trip, and I saw a light at the end of the tunnel. It was still so far away, but at last I could see there was bliss far off in the distance if only I could survive this struggle. What that angel did for me is something no one else in my life could do. The world may call LSD illegal, but I know it as truth. It was the first time I reconnected with bliss, since it offered me the same feeling I touched on December 28th. It connected two dots of historical moments in my mind, and when I feared I'd never find that feeling again, I discovered it was just a bit late. That angel was not a Christian, but rather he was a Muslim who saved my life, and if he didn't show up with LSD, sooner or later I would have gone into the kitchen and got that knife. Now shortly after he left, I met another angel who became my second ally, and by some miracle life put me on a path to open up to her, and there I told her how I was planning to die. She listened with her whole heart, and soon I listened when she told me her story. She tried to kill herself on January 19th, which just so happened to be the date of my birthday. She drank a whole bottle of tequila, followed by a whole bottle of benzos from what she had described. That's when I realized I carried a bottle of benzos around the whole world with me, and this death wish was the same so-called medicine I was prescribed. No doctor could understand, for they'd write more prescriptions and get me hooked on pills. I'd be stuck on their medicine forever, paying their paychecks with reoccurring bills. But if not for my guardian angels and that LSD, then my inner demons would have never released me. And without the second angel's warning from her own suicide attempt, who knows where I'd be? And so the story goes on, but not everyone is as lucky as me. For who am I? I'm the one who realized God wasn't coming to save me, and so God sent a Muslim man so I could be saved by LSD.